0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I think today's episode is going to be very revealing about some things that are taking place in law and in our government and in our culture and in the Christian policy and legal community that you are going to want to know about, and I hope you will share it with many of your friends who may be being led down some primrose path to a hellish destination and not know it. I want to begin today by, one, showing my age, but you may remember the song by um, Chicago—Chicago Transit Authority is what they used to be called—in 1969, they said, does anybody know what time it is? Does anybody really care? And, And I think the time for our governors, our legislators, and our Christian legal and policy leaders and our pastors to not care about the most important legal and political issue of the next 50 years or so, maybe 100, just slip right on by them. Because when that window closes, that opportunity to care closes, everybody will be made to care. And and this thought was stirred in me by an opinion released on Monday by U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. But the compelling gravitas of what he wrote was actually stirred two weeks ago by a 27-minute speech by attorney Jeff Schaefer of the Hale Institute. You can find it uh, on YouTube. And a podcast comment by Rosaria Butterfield, who was a tenured professor at Syracuse University teaching feminist and queer theory at Syracuse before becoming a Christian. Now, I want to get to Alito's opinion— in a bit, but I need to set it up so that you will appreciate why I say time is running out on our Christian leaders in government and law and on the pastors in our nation. So I'll begin with a quick analysis of uh, Mr. Schaefer's speech, and he spoke on a subject given little consideration today—archetypes—even though— We use archetypes every day in our thinking. So to keep the context here with Rosaria Butterfield, who I'll get to in a moment, when she was teaching feminist theory at Syracuse, she used some kind of mythical archetypal woman as the foundation for developing feminist theory, which, as you know, minimizes men and turns them into the antagonists, that women have to overcome to achieve the various ends represented by their mythical hierarchical type woman. But that theory lends itself easily to the queer theory, she taught. Male and female as archetypes under the larger archetype of human being are dissolved in queer theory into a mythical unisexual archetype. And and with this theory, the, the categories of sex, male and female, are the antagonist. And those categories must be overcome to achieve this higher state of unisexual being all on a scale with no given, fixed, defined, within parameters nature. And that idea of, of these archetypes that she's using to develop her or or used, I should say, to develop her her feminist theory and her queer theory uh, pertain to what Jeff Schaefer said. And he rightly noted that the marital relationship between male and female was once considered the primeval archetype for society, and consequently the archetype for organizing the law that orders society, our social relationships. see, it's the same principle that uh, Dr. Butterfield used to use for her queer theory and feminist theory, and the archetype, instead of being the mythical woman or being, you know, the mythical unisexual figure, it was the marital relationship. But we have to appreciate that male and female were the archetypes for what it meant to be human. And that's what formed the predicate for the archetypal social institution of the marital relation. In other words, unless you embrace a different view of humanity, and specifically what it means to be man and woman, there can be no reason to ever redefine marriage in terms that would accommodate two men or two women. There'd be no reason to do it. So, in other words, in 2015, uh, I would suggest that the queer theory of human meaning was enthroned in the United States Supreme Court's constitutional jurisprudence by its decision, Obergefell versus Hodges. And as Mr. Schaefer noted, the Supreme Court, by defining the civil marital relationship, and here's the quote, into a non-procreative and same-sex relation and status, renounced its previous form and meaning, transmogrifying it into its antithesis. In other words, completely changing and obliterating the understanding of the marital relationship into its exact opposite. Or put another way, the archetypal social institution defining the nature and foundation of, and here's his quote, all relationality was jurisprudentially described and converted into a psychologically affirming tool and a right of fruitless individuality. In other words, he's taking what the Supreme Court said, that marriage responds to this fundamental desire to not wake up in the middle of the night and find out that you're alone. All of life now is defined in terms of psychology and mental health or mental illness. There is no guilt anymore in the world because there can't be any sin, because there isn't any God. So marriage is just an emotionally, psychologically fulfilling institution, which, of course, any two people can have. And if that's how we define it, then being fruitful and multiplying uh, the purpose for which God created man and woman in marriage, uh, well, it it completely falls away and is unnecessary, right? Right. So, civil government marriage, by licensure, is now, by definition, a queered institution. I'm not using that in a pejorative way, I'm just saying that's what it is, right? And I believe the reason we don't see this or appreciate this, this archetypal upheaval in our law is because of our tendency as moderns to think of law in bits and pieces, to turn a phrase from Francis Schaefer in one of his speeches or books. But as Jeff Schaeffer noted in his speech, law today is seen as directed at isolated events, such as marital relationship, or the parent-child relationship, or COVID shots, uh, who has to have them, who can come see people in the hospital, all of that, without any thought, of there being any common conceptual roots inhering in and therefore defining the entire field of law in our human social interactions and relationships. And and you say, well, well, wait a minute, David. How does the marital relationship define the fact that so-and-so is my friend? Well, because he can't be—that that friend is defined as a friend because that friend is not part of a marital relationship. So that friend can only be a friend as distinguished from a spouse. So you see the words friend or colleague or whatever draw their meaning from their disassociation or distance from the marital relationship, which defines therefore, as I said, all of our interpersonal social relationships. And, and to be honest, um, the law has to center around and collate around and conform to this new archetype, because law is like everything else God created. And, and this is how Jeff put it. Law is a mutually informing whole with an effective imperative toward unity among its parts. Now what is he saying there and here's the way I'd put it at least theologically, because God is a unity within his parts, okay the distinctives of the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit they still form a unity right and so if 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 creation is going to reveal to us the glory of God, its distinctives its parts must also form a unity, so when you remove Jesus Christ as the archetype for creation and recreation. Think of the passages—a passage in Colossians chapter 1, that he's the beginning, the firstborn of all creation, he's the firstborn of the recreation, and then with respect to creaturely existence, Adam and Eve and the marital relationship were the archetype there, well, when you replace the archetype in one place, you've necessarily replaced it in the other. So in other words, uh, when we replaced Adam and Eve in the marital relationship with, with this new archetype, it's not surprising we have a Satan club that says Satan is now the metaphor, the archetype by which we understand the world. The same can go the other way. You could have started out by saying Satan is now the, the, the metaphor by which we understand the world, the archetype. He replaces Jesus. And so now we have to replace Adam and Eve. And we have to replace the marital relationship. But you're either going to have Christ and Adam and Eve in the marital relationship as your archetype for all of creation and all of law, or you're going to have Satan in this redefined, queered understanding of what it means to be human and the marital relationship. You only have one or the other, there's no middle ground. Anywhere, ever, Adam was created to move to death or to glory. And we are every day, as Christians, moving on towards glory or moving under the disciplining judgment of God because he wants holy creatures who are fit to the final transformation of the glory that is in Christ Jesus as a creature that we will become like. So we got to be moving one direction or the other. They're in the middle ground. And and that's what what Jeff's saying. You can't divide up the universe, and you can't have a middle ground. So think, f- for example, with me. Let me put this in non-theological, non-legal terms. Um, let's let's say you have plantar fasciitis in your right foot, or or a bunion that's really painful. It's an it's an abnormality localized in the one foot, right? But that doesn't mean you don't have a foot. It just means you're gonna begin to walk abnormally to conform to the abnormality in order to reduce the pain. But that's gonna then affect your hip, which will affect your back. And now the left foot, because it's getting more pressure on it, because you're trying to relieve the pressure on the right foot, it's gonna start to bury under stress and that's gonna bring its own consequences. Everything begins to feel like it hurts. So when Obergefell repudiated the archetypes around which the law has ordered and organized our individual lives and our social relations for century, it doesn't mean, well, we just won't have any law on that subject or we'll have a different law on that subject and that subject only. No, it means all of our law must adjust to this new thing. And the whole of law must become abnormal in comparison to what it was. It becomes the new Normal. And that brings me to Alito's opinion. On Monday of this week, the Supreme Court refused to grant an appeal uh, in a case out of Missouri. And here's what happened as described by Justice Alito Quote, The lower court reasoned that a person who still holds traditional religious views on questions of sexual morality is presumptively unfit to serve on a jury in a case involving a party who is a lesbian. Let me repeat that. The lower court reasoned that a person who still holds traditional religious views on questions of sexual morality, which I presume is most of my listeners, well, you are presumptively, meaning as a matter of law, unfit now, To serve on a jury in a case involving a party who is a lesbian. And the reason for the state court's rejection of that Christian juror in a case involving a a lesbian is simple. It's what I've already described through the speech of Jeff Schaefer that I've just covered. America and its legal system and its jurisprudence are operating under a new understanding of what it means to be human. Okay? And that new understanding as I said, was laid in Obergefell versus Hodges. And so the law is now conforming around this new archetype. So here's what Alito wrote, and and he affirmed what I've been loudly, and I confess, even combatively saying to my Christian colleagues in law and policy and government and saying to pastors across Tennessee and, and some of the leading pastors in our nation that I've been able to meet at events and leading Christian organizations. I've been trying to warn them about the coming effects of Obergefell. And so this is what Alito wrote about the state court's decision. Quote, the holding, the holding meaning the Christian juror presumptively shouldn't sit on a case involving a labs And the holding exemplifies the danger that I anticipated in Obergefell versus Hodges. Namely, that Americans who do not hide their adherence to traditional religious beliefs about homosexual conduct will be labeled as bigots and treated as such by the government. That's what he wrote in his dissent to Obergefell, is that Christians are going to be, quote, labeled as bigots and treated as such by the government. Hmm. Well, there we go, Right. But notice what he next said, and this is is really important. you got to get this. Quote, the opinion of the court in that case, Obergefell, made it clear that the decision should not be used in that way. But I am afraid that this admonition is not being heeded by our society. In other words, I predicted this, and I said it shouldn't be used this way, but he's saying, but nobody's heeding that. They, they are making Christians into bigots and excluding them under the law. But of course that admonition isn't heeded. It can't be heeded for the reason that I just covered. It's the nature of law itself. It's the nature of God's creation itself to conform to the given archetypes, the accepted archetypes. It's either going to be Jesus and Adam and Eve in marriage, or it's going to be Satan and Obergefell. And so society is doing what it must do, the law is doing what it must do, because, well, we've left the whole issue unaddressed for eight years. So that, that let me let me make this um, practical. Uh, Because you might say, well, I I don't know anybody that's trying to address Obergefell. And actually, we are in Tennessee. We, We have a bill that'll be coming up in about two weeks that says, and a man and a woman do not need the permission or the license of a government to get married. They have a right to exchange their vows. Their vows create the marriage, and then they can go to the courthouse and record an affidavit that says, we are married. And that strikes at the heart of Obergefell that treats all marriages as created by government licenses. But anyway, um, there's another practical example, raging on, and, and I would say that what I've just explained about Obergefell and how the law and the Constitution is now, and our jurisprudence is organizing itself around these new archetypes, this is exactly why. No bill on parental rights should have ever been filed that relies in any way on the U.S. Constitution because its understanding of human beings and the family is now informed by Obergefell. You refer to the U.S. Constitution and you are pulling into your state bill a jurisprudence informed by Obergefell that's already leading to the exclusion of Christians as jurors in cases involving lesbians. So what's next for parents who hold to these traditional views when the rest of society says no children have a right to uh, decide if they're transgendered? Go loose. It's coming. Just mark it down on your calendar today, but it's coming. And I will tell you that there is not one Christian legal or policy organization that I'm aware of in the country, state or national, that is not supportive of this idea of putting into state laws that the parental right relationship is also protected by the U.S. Constitution. (laughs) And they're doing it through the 14th Amendment. And guess what? The 14th Amendment says... Congress shall have the power to enforce its provisions by legislation. So when you refer to the U.S. Constitution, you're referring to Obergefell as it stands right now, because it's never been challenged, and nobody's trying to challenge it except for us. And and you're going to get obergefell and eventually as Congress continues to drift to the left, they're going to say, oh, wait a minute, no state shall have a law that doesn't allow a child to transgender themselves. Don't think it'll ever happen? Well. I bet you if you're old enough, you said, we'll we'll never have gay marriage in this country. That's ridiculous. Uh, That's like saying a a triangle can have four sides. It just can't happen. Well, it did. Sorry if I sound a little exercised here. But I see that time is running out for the Christian church to wake up, and that brings me to Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, I saw an interview of her on YouTube. And she said she would no longer write for what I would call the "Be Kind Above All Else" Christian Coalition, or excuse me, um, Gospel Coalition, or for Christianity Today. And here's why she said, because quote, we disagree about what time it is. And then listen to what followed that statement: We disagree about whether we live in a post-Obergefell world. She understands our times. She understands we live in a post-Obergefell world. The former archetypes for society and law that shape us and hold us together, they've been repudiated, and we don't understand that, and I don't think there's any Christian organization I know of that I've dealt with that understands that. And the law is marshalling its forces every day to make sure that it conforms and everyone conforms to the new archetypes because that's the nature of what law does. Because it's placed in God's cosmos in which all the disparate parts have to have a unity. And that's what Alito was saying Whether he realized it or not. And it was already happening to the the Christians who bake cakes and arrange flowers for weddings, but the law is going to have to come for every Christian, every homeschool family. Pay attention if you're a homeschool family, if the rest of us don't wake up to. Now, as I alluded to a minute ago, I'm working on a bill here in Tennessee that, that even the lawyers for the homosexual community have said it undermines Obergefell. And I'm going to just tell you, so far, no Christian policy organization in the country or Christian legal organization in the country will support it. Can't get them to send an email, can't get them to n- nothing. And some of the biggest ones have actually expressly declined to support it for reasons I'll get into in next week's podcast. But I hope you see the alarm clock has already gone off, and we're dozing through it. And and if you want to, to pray that we wake up, then let me ask you to do this for me. Would you please begin to pray now and for the next couple of weeks that God will direct our governor, Bill Lee, who professes to be a Christian, to stop opposing this marriage bill and support it, even if it's quietly, letting legislators know it's okay to pass it and and pray that the same would be true among a majority of our senators and our representatives right now the the republican leadership of the house and the senate which is predominantly all republican um that they haven't yet seen the value and the importance of this i think they're more concerned about what kind of conventions we would lose or business um prospects we would lose if if we dare say that Okay, you can have your license, but but a man and a woman don't have to get one because they can create a marriage because that's how God did things. So anyway, please be praying that there'll be repentance here and a going forward, and God will direct the hearts. I'm not sending out a bunch of emails because this is going to have to be a God thing. It's not going to be by force or by power or how many people— You know, I can gather in support of it because I guarantee you the homosexual community can garner far more votes and far more power and make far more contributions and threaten far fewer uh, conventions and threaten not coming to Tennessee and leaving Tennessee than I can ever stir up pastors and Christians to send emails and make phone calls. This will have to be a work of God, period. But maybe— should God accept our cries of repentance and hear our cries of mercy and our pleading that he would direct the hearts of the people here of Tennessee as he directs the channels of water, perhaps we could move the bill forward, maybe even pass the bill, and establish that Goliath can be killed still. And we don't have to cower and quake and fear and do something else because we can't Face the Goliath that's in front of us. Oh, may the Lord grant us repentance and courage. So anyway, I hope you'll come back next week, and I'll be exposing how a large Christian legal and policy organization in our country is trying to subject your parental rights to the power and the jurisdiction of Congress, and I think you'll want to hear that. So thank you again for joining me today, and if you found this helpful, please share it with your friends. Blessings. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.